This is the official HITS training and consulting podcast. We are America's law enforcement canine training resource. We're raising the training bar for police dogs everywhere by discussing the intricate details of the training techniques used by the experts. HITS Radio is merging the training world with the real world. You've been there. We've been there, too. Welcome to HITS Canine Radio. I'm your host, Jeff Meyer. Today, I have Nathan Hall with us. He's uh, going to be teaching a class at HITS. You've probably heard his name on a few of the podcasts I've done in the past. I know that I've done a couple of podcasts when Cameron Ford mentioned Nathan's name, that he does some uh, work. So if you're familiar with Cameron, you've probably heard Cameron mention his name. Maybe uh, you even heard him on uh, Cameron's podcast. But I wanted to bring him on today to talk a little bit about the class that he's going to do at uh, HITS in Orlando this year and just kind of pick his brain a little bit about some of the research that they've done. So with that, uh, how are you doing today, Nathan? Perfect. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I'm glad you took the time out of your day. For the listeners that uh, aren't familiar with you, can you kind of talk a little bit about your background and what you're doing right now? Yes. Um, So I'm currently the director of the Canine Olfaction Lab out at Texas Tech University. So we do a variety of different types of research projects, mostly all related and revolving around working dogs to some degree, with a primary focus on understanding the dog's sense of smell as well as how different types of training fundamentally impact the way the dogs perceive different kinds of odors and how can we optimize training to improve performance as well as make sure that the dogs are responding to exactly what we think that they're responding to. We're kind of like the the lab geeks in a way. So we do a lot of tinkering with different types of electronics and tools to get very good control of the odor stimuli that we're giving to the dogs and understand how you know, presenting it in different ways, you know, measuring sure. thresholds, sort of get at answering relevant questions. And are these, uh, the dogs you're working with, are they all types of detector dogs or more, more bomb dogs or a little everything? Uh, I'd say it kind of depends on, on the current flavor or, or I guess our moods. We sort of work with all kinds, ranging from, you know, we've worked with nose work dogs. We train some of our own dogs that are shelter dogs looking for a home. We've worked with operational dogs and um, explosives dogs, as well as conservation detection dogs. So what they're looking for isn't as much of an interest as to how the the physiological part of the dog works is is what you're more looking at? Yeah, I would say that, I mean, it is physiology and and that physiological component, um, but really it's understanding that behavioral component. So it's hard to... um, uh, imagine because you know we sort of think that what we're experiencing is is what is really in the world around us but what we experience is very strongly shaped by our experiences okay. you know what you see and you know when you're driving what you taste when you're eating something those are all strongly experienced by you know what previous experiences you've had and what learning experiences you've had and our question is as well how does that impact the way that dogs you know perceive different types of you know, you know, of odors in the world, you know, does it matter if the dogs, you know, had experience with really high concentrations of a target when it comes across, you know, a substantially larger operational explosive than what it's previously been trained on. So answering those questions are things that um, we've been interested in as recent. Okay. And let's back up just a hair. And what, what's your, what's your personal background? Did you go to school at the same place that you're at now? Or have you, uh, Ah, yeah, so I uh, did my bachelor's and PhD at the University of Florida, 
I did a postdoc at Arizona State, and then I've been working as an assistant professor for five years at Texas Tech University. And, and that's where I established the canine olfaction lab. So when you were going to school, was was the dog part of, uh, did you go like for, what was your, your area of study, like chemistry or something? or uh, Behavior analysis. Okay. So uh, experimental psychologist by training. So okay. we were interested in the cognitive aspects. So cognition, behavior of animals. And my focus was obviously dogs. Yeah. And uh, within sort of the cognition realm, olfaction for a long time had been neglected. Sure. So that was kind of the, the niche that I carved out for myself and, and that I was interested in. And I like it because uh, obviously, you know, there's some really good research going on. Like at, uh, I've talked to Lauren DeGrieff at Florida International University, and they're coming at it from more of the chemistry part of, of the idea. So you're looking at more of the behaviorists. I think uh, there's there's a lot of good stuff. I'm sure you guys probably work together on some, yes. some ideas. Yeah, no, we... We collaborate with a lot of folks, and then we also have Dr. Palatineman out here at the Forensics Institute at Texas Tech. So, you know, we, we're working with chemists every day yeah. uh, to some degree, so it's not a, an isolation, but our, our focus is on sort of that cognition behavior uh, aspect of things. Fascinating. And did you always want to work with dogs as you were going through college, or did something happen where you got the interest in it? No, I was always going to work with dogs. I was going to be a veterinarian one day, and that's what I was doing sort of preparing for in my bachelor's degree but then I got involved in research and I just I was so interested in you know these questions where nobody knows the answers yeah. to and yeah. it's not settling for me you know to have yeah. a I don't know answer. so I was like well it turns out there's a whole job where you can spend your entire life you know trying to figure out the answers to these questions it's it's a very infuriating job because you know if you knew what the answer was yeah. then you, you wouldn't be doing it right so you never you run into 10,000 problems every every step you turn, but it's that kind of level of interest and engagement that excites me about it. Sure, and I'm sure you're, you're getting answers to, to a lot of your questions as you work through it, I would imagine. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, you try and set up experiments so that no matter what, you know, you're always learning every day and always learning something new with the, with the yeah. experiments that you do. And, you know, that that's the most rewarding thing. The scientific part of it, you know, is... You know, you do one manipulation, you're like, oh, that looks interesting. Now let's do that 10,000 more times until we're, you know, perfectly confident that this is this is the answer. Yeah. So it's a lot of repetition and a lot of things, but, you know, there's nothing more satisfying than, you know, looking back after six months and tens of thousands of searches that you ran with the dogs and sort of compiling everything into these, you know, graphs and saying, wow, there's actually really clear trends here. Yeah. That's That's my favorite part of the job. And what are some of the, the projects that you're excited about that you either have worked on or that you're working on right now that would be, you know, of interest? Obviously, all my listeners are police officers or military guys that are working with detection dogs. So I know there's probably quite a bit that you've uh, looked at in those fields. Yeah. So, um, I mean, general topics that we've explored, I'd say probably like a series of topics that we explored recently was really looking at the impact of odor concentration uh, on detection dog performance. Uh, so for a long time, you know, we've known that dogs sometimes will have issues generalizing from one thing that you've trained them on to some variation of it, but still an operationally relevant target. But one thing that hadn't really been looked at so much is, well, what if it's the exact same odor, but just at a different concentration? Sure. So we did an experiment looking at how does the range of concentrations that you train the dog to find 
impact their detection performance. So some dogs, you know, you train them always at the same concentration. Other dogs, you train them to systematically lower that concentration. And we measure their thresholds. And we find that that actually produces very different levels of performance in the dogs in terms of what range of concentrations they will detect. When you talk about concentration, are you talking about, say, the weight of the training aid? Or is it the same weight with a different type of amount of the training aid with some type of filler in with it? Yeah, so in our, uh, particularly for our experiments, we manipulate concentration either through a liquid dilution, so sort of what you mean by different kind of filler, sure. or through air dilution, which is where we actually systematically dilute the amount of clean air that's being mixed with the target. So this would operationally be more relevant to like concealment okay. or having some type of container that is reducing the, the odor escape. Okay. And in those cases, we find that the way that you train the dog has a pretty big impact on what range that they'll detect. And it even goes the other way. So we did an experiment after there was an operational situation where 30 pounds of ANFO, uh, the dogs cleared it. And the question was, is, well, why? Yeah. And through a series of, of systematic experiments, working with, with the agency, we were able to uh, determine that it was largely because that group was restricted in the amount of that particular material that they were able to train. They were training with 30 grams and the dog had to find 30 pounds and they did not generalize satisfactorily to that. And there was a series of experiments that we did to demonstrate that. And that'll be one of the things that I'll be, I'll be covering in more detail when I can show pictures and slides yeah, and things sure. like that. So is there, do you have a, a general answer? Cause that's like a big question. Obviously I work at bomb dog. That's a big question that we talk about a lot. You know, we train on different amounts, but obviously, you know, what we have available to us varies by agency. So I'm pretty fortunate in my agency, we work with our bomb squad and we have the opportunity to train with, you know, it, it's not hard at all to go out and put 50 pounds of something out pretty regularly. Is there, right. is there some amounts where, you know, if I've taught my dog on, you know, small amounts and then I also have taught him on mid-level amounts and also he's exposed regularly to 50 pounds, is there a, an amount where once they can do say 50 pounds, then they can also do a thousand pounds or two thousand pounds yeah i mean that's a, that's a really great question that's one that is to come i don't have that answer for okay. you today <laughs> that is something that we're interested in and in working on and trying to figure out well you know you know the 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 easy answer is is that if you want a dog to find something you train them on that but to some degree you obviously can't train them on all variations yeah. Right? Yeah. sometimes you don't have it available, you know? Is yeah. it satisfactory to train on a certain amount 90% of the time, but then when you can get to a seminar twice a year and train on 50 pounds, is that enough? And, you know, unfortunately the, the current answer right now is I don't know, but I, I hope, you know, through some, our next level of, of experiments and research, we will actually have an answer for that. Okay. But, but yeah, no, I don't have a great answer for that right now other than uh, train as much as you can until until we can get get that yeah. uh, exact amount. But right now, all we know is that it's super important to do that. But what's the most efficient way? That's that's really the next sort of generation of of research that we hope to be accomplishing soon. Okay, that, that's I'm glad that somebody's doing that because you know I can tell you anecdotally what has worked for me in the past, but that's it's not as scientific. So I imagine that part of that research then will be. Can a dog, if, if a dog has the skill to, to work through the problem of 500 pounds of odor A, 
when he's exposed to odor B and he's never been around 500 pounds of that, can he also then work through that or does he have to be exposed to large amounts of each and every odor? Is that part of the research or do you know the answer to that yet? Yeah, no, we don't know the answer to that. And there is a bit of a complication with odors is that, you know, the they don't behave the same. Sure. In the same, yep. you know, like some odors, when you change concentration, they actually smell pretty similar. You know, when you think about vanilla, right? When you when you open up a bottle of vanilla yeah. and you dilute that out, it smells relatively quite similar for a, quite a wide, wide, wide sure. range of concentration. But there are other molecules that you change the concentration by a hundredfold and you wouldn't even think it smells like the same chemical. Okay. It would smell different to you. So for example, there are some that smell, there's a particular molecule that smells like white floral scents at low concentrations, but feces at high concentrations. So oh. like, you wouldn't even think that these two molecules are related. So it ends up being a very complicated question to answer without lots and lots of research to be done because, you know, when you start thinking about an explosives dog, right? Yeah. How many classes you got to work with, you know, and then wondering to what degree does training with one class on different concentrations impact the next class? Yeah, it, it quickly becomes a very overwhelming problem. But yeah, so the answer is, is at this point, we can't really extrapolate from one odor to the next. But I do expect that there is going to be and we do know this from animal cognition, you know, that when you train with a similar problem over and over again, then it, it makes it easier for you to generalize to, you know, new versions of that problem. We call it learning set. You know, if sure. you are some type of color discrimination between blue and red, you know, then it becomes easier to, after you've done green and yellow, to then do purple and red. Okay. You know, the yeah. more variations you get, the better you get at, at related concepts. So I imagine that there definitely would be some relation in there, but it unfortunately all needs these these testing permutations to sure. be able to say for sure. And when you're doing that, is it difficult? Are you doing some like, uh, I'm sure you're very familiar with Cameron's cognition tests that he's, he, you know, he came out and showed us those. I'm sure you're familiar with a lot of that stuff. Before mm -hmm. you pick a dog, are you going through those types of, or some type of cognition test so you get a clear baseline of a dog or are you trying to get dogs of all different spectrums when you're running these research projects? So for most of our studies, we like to get pretty much, you know, the range of dogs and, and we have done, and we do sort of kind of keep track of sort of their performance on some of these cognitive tasks, but uh -huh. our general research approach, just because, you know, running through, through dogs is, is not cheap and, and not yeah. particularly is that we do a lot of within subject data analysis. So set up experiments so that, you know, a, a single dog will, you know, perform tens of thousands of trials for us. Okay. So we can compare them to themselves. I see. You know, how, you know, how good are you at generalizing now? How good are you at generalizing now after we've given you this type of training? Or how good are you at generalizing after you've been trained to this? And then what yeah. about after this? Things. Yeah. So we set up our experiment so that we can, you know, track dogs and then we use multiple dogs to look at, well, how well does this sort of repeat across dogs? Is this consistent or was dog one just a genius, you know, but yeah. not everyone does it this way. And then once we start seeing a pattern where it looks like every dog does this, then, then we sort of know that we found something relatively consistent and repeatable. And then we try and take that to operational dogs to make sure it works out in the field. Oh, I can see why that is a, a time consuming process. 
the the dogs that you start out with do you have a particular breed that you like to work with best in the laboratory you know i don't have a particular you know this is my this is my breed kind of uh of dog because we work with you know as i said all kinds ranging from you know the shelter dogs to work you know former working dogs you know working with mostly labs pointers and other types of mixes uh-huh. and you know the things that we've we've found you know is that you, you know you know sort of the type of dog once you start training them but we haven't really found the way to figure out beforehand you know what what dog is going to yeah. be that rock solid no matter what you throw at this dog it is going to succeed and perform amazingly you know beforehand yeah. and it's not necessarily things that you know we predict a lot of times you know we we fail to recognize those traits because you know we reject dogs be- too early or before we've you know given them a chance or just looked sure. at them and said no that dog's not going to work but then you know we kind of work through them all and then let the data sort of tell us which dogs work well and which ones don't work well and, and that's always a bit fun because it's surprising and there's nothing more fun than, than being surprised you know, oh, by yeah. a dog. Yeah. And you think like, wow, this dog, you know, I don't think that they're going to be able to do it. But then this dog is a rock star with no matter what you throw at it. Yeah, so, yeah. But no, we don't have a specific type of, of breed. We sort of work with them all. I mean, I have my own personal favorites, but not because they're better per se sure. working dogs. Yeah. Well, that, that sounds like fascinating stuff. What other projects do you have going on? I, I've talked to Cameron about several things that... Uh, he's talked to you about so i mentioned sort of the different concentration work that we've been doing we've been doing you know we've done previous projects sort of looking at how does the amount of information that a handler knows about a search task influence their performance you know so whether uh the search itself has been uh the handler has sort of come to believe that you know there's an odor going to be found in in every search task that they're given versus whether there's going to be blanks it seems that there, you know, becomes different performance between the handler and ultimately the dog based off of some of that information. So um, is that is that similar to the Berkeley study that yes. people talk so, about? Yeah. Um, so I think you're referring to the Lisa Litton yes. study about, yes. um, yeah, whether the handlers were intentionally deceived. So we started, So it was kind of it was a bit inspired by that, and the purpose of of our project was to look at, well, what happens when you don't necessarily intentionally see yes. someone, but rather yes. you know, let the, the task itself, you know, provide some people with uh, information or some people without information. So we never gave any inaccurate information. We just told some people that you're going to search three rooms. Two of them are going to have a target. One is not. And other people were just told, search these three rooms, please. And we did see some differentiation in sort of how they searched as well as how long especially they searched in the blank room but we didn't actually see fundamental differences in the number of false alerts so and we also did a, a, a quick run through whether the test was single blind or double blind and again we didn't see uh, substantial differentiation in the number of false alerts under under those cases so that's another study that we've worked on so let me ask you on that study were the the final numbers of your study were they much different than the Berkeley study or did it kind of come out relatively the same? Um, well, I mean, I, I would say that they were they were probably too different to make a direct comparison in that sense. But ultimately, what we did find is something that was not quite the same as what that study found. And this, you know, and it, 
it was probably chalked up to differences in the study itself, right? We didn't uh-huh. intentionally tell people that you should find a target here and then looked at whether they found it or responded to a target there. But when we didn't provide intentional deceit, we didn't see an increase in that false positive rate. And that sort of goes against what was found in that other study, but it's hard to say whether it's against or for just because, you know, the there was an important difference was that study, you know, was looking at when people ha- had beliefs planted because yeah. they were told yeah. that something was there versus in our case where people were just either given additional information or were completely blinded to the to the sort of the parameters of the scenario. Okay. Interesting. What are some other uh, studies? Did you do one on uh, about gun dogs, I believe? About what, sorry? Gun dogs or detection dogs that find guns? No, so Cameron and um, Paula did some recent work uh, oh, okay. with gun dogs. Okay. I was not part of that study. Okay. We have done a study recently looking at, you know, looking at dogs' generalization from smokeless powder to a, a variety of different smokeless powder-related related, uh, materials or potential training aids. So things that have had direct contact or indirect contact exposure to smokeless powder. And, you know, the things that we did find from that study is that the dogs that were trained directly to the smokeless powder responded quite strongly to different cotton materials that had been exposed directly to smokeless powder. Uh, We used uh, uh, the Gaxent tubes, which is a, a new type of of training aid that was out on the market that's basically kind of an absorbent material that uh-huh. you can put with um, particular material. And then we also looked at whether the dogs would then, who'd been trained on the smokeless powder, respond to swabs from a clean gun or a recently fired gun. And both of those two options produced no alerts, almost no alerts at all. The dogs weren't interested. They also weren't interested in a single molecule that's associated or the most prevalent volatile with smokeless powder, but they were relatively interested and responded uh, with a decrement to single base, and but they responded quite strongly to materials that had sort of direct smokeless powder contact. Um, and we were, sorry, the dogs were trained to double base in our case. Okay. Um, so we did see good generalization, but we did not see good generalization to essentially swabs from a clean or recently fired gun or bullets themselves indicating that you know just training directly to a double base smokeless powder probably doesn't get you strong responding to those other materials and that's uh, you know i just did a podcast with some other trainers and that was a discussion we had so i think the answer is that if you're a bomb dog handler and you want your bomb dog to find guns you need to put out guns for him to find that he's not going to generalize from the odors that area has? Yes, that matches the data that we found. Interesting. So, yeah, to to us, uh, what we found is that, you know, you'll, de- you'll definitely need to include uh, gun, gunshot residue, or, or some components related to that um, as part of that training picture. Because, you know, when, when the gun gets fired, the smokeless powder, you know, or even inside of the bullets, right, they're encapsulated, yeah. you know, really well so that is not just what a what a gun smells like um and the voc data seems to back that up as well very interesting and then have you got any other studies that you've uh that you're excited about in our field lots of studies i think some of our more recent studies have been sort of related to conservation detection dogs which is probably a little bit less wrapped up into here 
Um, we've done some previous work uh, that I also like to talk about on training dogs to detect odor mixtures. So particularly, you know, things that odor mixtures related to like homemade explosives. Sure. So sure. ammonium nitrate based mixtures, things like that. And sort of the take homes from that is, you know, again, if you want the dog to find a mixture, they need to have training and exposure to that mixture. And in that study, we compared different ways of, of presenting them with ammonium nitrate to get them to respond to ammonium nitrate mixtures and looked at, you know, if you were trained to just pure ammonium nitrate or ammonium nitrate and mixtures, how well do you respond to a variety of new ammonium nitrate mixtures that you hadn't previously had training towards? And the way that you trained them definitely had a really important impact on particularly their alert rate or their hit rate. You know, if there was an ammonium nitrate mixture, did they respond to it? Okay. Um, so that's another that I like to go into detail about how we did. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing more about that because I think that's an important uh, component as a bomb dog handler that, you know, if we're only training on the single odor all the time, what you're saying is that when they when they put the whole bomb together, it might be different enough that your dog really won't work it completely like you think you will. Yeah, and especially, and it, and it definitely sort of rung true, particularly with ammonium nitrate, because ammonium nitrate has such a low vapor pressure. It's not, you know, it's not a trivially detected odor. So then when you start mixing it with a variety of other materials, it really, you know, it's really not the same odor anymore. And and they can do, they can do it. Yeah. It's just, you have to give them the right experience and the right exposures to be able to do that. So commonly that would be like with fuel oil or something, then the fuel oil is basically going to take over more, most of the odor. Is that? Yeah. Or it can even be something with even, you know, not even as, I guess, odor dominating as fuel oil. It could be something like sugar, right? Or uh-huh. flour, things like that. You know, those are also sources of fuels. So, so even things that may not even have its own smelly components, even those mixtures alone can, can smell different than wow. okay. the itself. And uh, I like to talk about different kinds of examples, you know, and there are, there are examples that we can do uh, in humans. So like there's a particular molecule that smells like strawberries and another molecule that smells like caramel. You mix them together and it produces a pineapple odor. You know, it's one of those things where yeah. it's what we call configural processing that when certain components get mixed together, they can end up producing this kind of third kind of smell that isn't related to either of the two individual components. Huh. So. Odors are fun. It's yeah. not It's not a straightforward world by any means. No, it's not. And I think, I've said it before, I think over the, I've been doing this for a long time, and I think over the you know 25 plus years I've been doing this, we talked a lot about science over the years, but I think in just the last few years, we really, as in our, in our profession, I think we've really started to embrace, you know, people like yourself that are doing a lot of really good scientific work. So, uh, you know, I really appreciate you know, that you come to HITS and you share all the information with us because I think it's really going to move the needle and just make our whole profession much better. Well, thank you. I'm really excited to be a part of it. And, you know, it's uh, it's definitely also been a bit of a two-way street, if you will, in a way that, you know, a lot of science has kind of stayed separate, investigating its own kinds of things. And one of the things that I've really been interested in is trying to, you know, how do we bridge that gap? How do we do the work in in you know in controlled ways so that we can get clear answers but also do it so that it's providing relevant answers sure and then also do that step where we try and actually take what we find in the lab and 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 bring it out to the real world 
And, you know, sometimes it works and it works beautifully and it, you know, we can give everyone a high five, but then sometimes it's like, oh, okay, well, that didn't work. Let's back to the drawing board, you know, and, and that's how we learn and that's how we get better is, you know, just repeating that process over and over again. Yeah, it's exciting. And just hearing all the stuff that that you're working on is exciting to me just because I think five years from now, we'll probably have some very different answers as to how we think. You know, I could tell you, like I said earlier, I could say anecdotally, I know what works, but I'm looking forward to having the science either tell me that, you know, I was lucky on a lot of it or what I saw is what I really saw. So I'm I'm really interested in all that. Hopefully uh, most of our listeners are are as well, because I think it's like I said, it's only going to make us better and better. So I appreciate you taking the time again today. I'm looking forward to, to Orlando this year, having you there. Um, I know the class is going to be great, and I appreciate you taking the uh, time out with uh, with us just to talk a little bit. Thank you very much. I'm very much looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to meeting everyone there, and uh, yeah, hopefully, hopefully I have something of some use to say. And, Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> I think it'll be a lot of fun. I'm excited. Excellent. Well, thanks, Nathan. Take care. Thank you. You too. Well, that's going to do it for another episode of Hits Canaan Radio. I hope you enjoyed this one. We always like to share a lot of information, and Dr. Nathan Hall uh, did definitely on this one. Another scientist that's going to be teaching some classes at Hits, and we, when we uh, hire our instructors, we really try to vet them a little bit to make sure that that not only do they have the information, but can they relate to us. And the scientists sometimes I think are on a, a different. Uh, sometimes a different topics or different maybe vocabulary than what we want. But once we talk to these uh, scientists that are doing a lot of stuff in our field, uh, it's easy to see that they're passionate about trying to help canine officers and and departments have better units and better uh, functioning canine units. So I appreciate Dr. Hall coming on here today. uh, He's got a busy schedule, and then he'll be in uh, Florida with us in Orlando. So you can go to hitscanine.net, and you can read all about the class that he's going to teach. As always, I appreciate uh, all of our different vendors. We've got quite a few new vendors coming, but we've got a lot of old, older vendors that have been with us for a long time. Uh, Natural Rich is a supplement company, and it's a family-owned company. They've been with us at pretty much every single hits that we've had, and definitely sure appreciate them coming. Satina's coming, and they're going to bring a car along with an insert. Havis is the same thing. Havis will be there. They'll be displaying a car along with one of their inserts. So it's a great opportunity to be able to to put your hands on different inserts before uh, you get to order a new car or your department does. So you can kind of make some very educated uh, decisions as to what you're what you're looking at. And finally, Ravencrest Tactical. If you if you like fancy knives or you need a good duty knife, Ravencrest Tactical will have a bunch there. And uh, they've been a vendor several years now with us, and we always get f- good feedback from the officers who come to our event about the quality of the the stuff they're selling there. So check out all of the vendors at hitsknet.net. There's a full list there. And as always, if you need anything or you want to give me feedback or ask some questions, I'm easy to get a hold of. It's just Jeff at hitsknine.net, and I truly welcome all the feedback I get. Thanks, everybody. Hits Radio. This is the official Hits Training and Consulting Podcast. We are America's law enforcement canine training resource. We're raising the training bar for police dogs everywhere by discussing the intricate details of the training techniques used by the experts. Hits Radio is merging the training world with the real world. You've been there. We've been there, too.